Well, thanks, Julius. Good evening, and uh, welcome to Uni Church. I want to add my welcome to Jaren's. My name's Rowan, one of the pastors here. And wow, what a passage. What an exciting day to think about um, what our culture says, what we say, how we understand God's Word. Um, so it's a great night tonight to think through what God says to us in His Word. And what we need to do is actually ask Him to help us to see the world His way. Certainly join with me as we pray together and ask God to help, him, help us to do that. Lord God, as we come here tonight, we come with all sorts of different backgrounds and biases and ideas that have shaped us, some great things, some really hard things. But we pray that as we've just heard your word read, that by your spirit, you might help us to see what it is to be men and women in your world, to flourish and to live to our fullness in a way that brings you glory and honor and it is for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin tonight by asking you a question. How often do you question culture? That's the first point as we go through the outline tonight. I'll put them up on the screen for you. How often do you question culture? See, throughout history, what it is to be a man and a woman has undergone so many transitions. Ancient societies often held these rigid kind of gender hierarchies. However, the Enlightenment helped people to think through, well, we need to emphasize human reason and, and rationality. That then led to the romanticism of the 19th century that emphasized personal experience and emotion and individual uniqueness. Then we kind of came along to the 20th century's existentialism, which kind of further emphasized the significance of individual subjectivity, my personal choice. What is this for me and for you? And then we saw the sexual revolution of the 1960s, which changed the kind of traditional sexual norms of society and encouraged the pursuit of sexual liberation and personal fulfillment to land us in a place as a society today where the way that we understand ourselves is not first and foremost by objective truth, but we understand ourselves by the way we feel, by our desires and our preferences. So much so, that recently, when our own Prime Minister uh, was asked the question, how do you define a woman, he struggled to answer. He struggled to give an answer to that very question. Now, you've got to remember, his previous portfolio was the Minister of Health, right? And here's what he said. He, he, he said, well, that question has come kind of out of left field to me, and then stumbled. And then went on to say, well, maybe look, biology, sex, gender, awkward pause. <laughs> and then said, look, people... People define themselves. People define their own genders. We've moved as a society from I think, therefore I am, out of Descartes, into I feel, therefore I am today. If you want to understand more of that, uh, it's well, well worth checking out a guy by Carl Truman, uh, who's written a book, Strange New World. Write that down, check it out. It looks at the history of how we've ended up where we've ended up. Um, really, really helpful book. But we've ended up in this position now where we, we go, well, you are who you feel you are. And if anyone suggests anything different, well, it's like we've, we've committed a massive crime. If someone came along and said, men and women are not the same. Oh, we start feeling that doesn't feel right or, or, or good. Or if, if we start putting in a structure into society or into any sorts of what we're doing as a, as a, as a culture where someone might suggest that there exists a difference between men and women... Well, we looked at as people who are reversing 200 years of history's progress and by saying that men and women aren't equal. Now, whatever you think of that Bible passage we just read, 
here at Union Church, we love working through the books of the Bible because you don't want to hear what some pastor up the front has got to say. You want to hear what God says in his word. And as we've opened up the book of 1 Timothy, here's where we get to this amazing section that helps us to think through the relationships of men and women. But whatever you thought of that passage we just read, I want to urge all of us tonight to question the culture we live in, to question the biases we come to look at the world through and God's word through. See, it's so important that we don't become people that just drift along with society. Culture is so powerful. Culture can set up for us a kind of view of the world where it makes certain conclusions we might come to as implausible without having to argue for them. You have to kind of argue why that's okay. You think about um, marriage and why it's between a man and a woman. And it's, now we've got to argue for why that's so important, even though God set that up so clearly in the beginning. But the question I want to ask of culture, of society is, does culture and society always get it right? We're only going to look at history for 10 seconds to see that, well, that's not the case. Societies kind of shifts and change all throughout history. You're only going to look at things like educational philosophies. They keep going round and round. Is it we want to have big classrooms with lots of kids in them so that they can learn off one another? What do we go back to small classrooms? And we're forever creating big classroom schools and small classroom schools and big classroom schools and small classroom schools. Then there's this idea, do we test kids or do we not test kids? No, we just let them go because we want to see them flourish. No, 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 we've actually got to test them so they actually have some content. It goes back and forward all the time. Then there's the way we dress. Apparently, the 90s called stonewashed jeans are back in. Did you know that? Do you know they're from the 90s? I'm just looking forward to when the 80s come back and everyone wears fluoro in their hair and like these big puffy shirts as they go around and big socks that are fluoro up to their knees. It'll be so cool. But what about sexuality? And wasn't that long ago that society said that free access to pornography was seen as a good thing? Go and experiment. It's fine. You want to not censor these things. You want to let people experience all sorts of experimentation. But now, all sorts of secular writers are speaking of its dangers. Here's my question. Are you sure in 20 years' time, our view of gender won't drift back into realizing that gender is more biologically determined than we are now thinking? And the things that we're legislating to protect at the moment, like gender transition, do you think that in 20, 30, 40 years' time, we won't look back and go, wow, some of these things have been destructive. There's already a growing body of research to say that. But if you speak up against these views today, well, you're viewed as perverted, kind of oppressive, almost evil, because ah, oh, you're, you're pushing something else on someone else because you feel, therefore you are. Well, friends, we must think clearly. As people who think there is a God who made us and is in control of the world, we must think clearly about the pull of our culture and not think that we are immune to it. Not think that our background and our biases, that we, we're a clean slate. We've got to recognize the impact of our culture on us. And as we come to God's word today, we need to ask ourselves, will I look at the Bible through the lens of culture or will, or will I look at culture through the lens of the Bible? Let me say it again. Will I look at the Bible through the lens of my culture or will I look at culture through the lens of the Bible. As we come to these issues of men and women and the way we relate, there are so many complexities about this whole issue. One of those is the, cultural, the effect culture has on us. But another issue is the brokenness 
of our world. That's the next point, if you want to write that down. The brokenness of our world. See, for many of us, we've been affected by the brokenness of the world we live in. We've experienced the abuse of male and female relationships. We've been harmed or hurt by others, or maybe we've caused harm and hurt ourselves to others. And so when we see something said that we feel could you know, lead to a repeat offense of something that has hurt us so much before, we, we kind of understandably recoil and pull back and go, oh, I'm not sure about that. The brokenness of men who've done all sorts of atrocities, all sorts of domination and saying, this is what will happen, pushing down of women. And you hear something like what this Bible passage says, and you're like, whoa, do I really want to go there? Is this actually healthy? Well, the great news is, God doesn't leave us alone to work out how to flourish as men and women. He doesn't let us just pick and choose our own destinies. He actually has something to say on that. And he also doesn't leave us alone when we're confronted with the brokenness and sin of the world around us. He offers grace to even someone like Paul that Paul spoke about in the last part of of the letter to, to Timothy. Remember, he was the worst of all sinners. And yet he, even he experienced God's mercy, not getting what he deserved because Jesus has died in his place and offered him life that lasts forever, even him, and it had nothing to do with who he is or what he'd done. And he therefore gets to live in this freedom of knowing what forgiveness is, of experiencing it himself for the atrocities that he'd committed. But also, he would live a life where all sorts of atrocities were committed against him as well, where he would offer forgiveness toward others as he looked to his Saviour and God, who knows what it's like to suffer at the hands of broken sinners as he was nailed to a cross and took the penalty that you and I deserve. As we open our Bibles and we hear what God has to say to us, we see that God has something good to say on what it means to be a man and a woman and what that looks like in the church. Something that doesn't leave us ebbing backwards and forwards with Society and culture's contrasting views. Something that gives us clarity on how to thrive as men and women. And he does it not as some sort of armchair critic, but as our creator. The one who loves us, the one who cares for us, and the one who made us. So the question we need to keep asking ourselves is, who will I listen to? Who will I listen to? Well, as we get to this next section in 1 Timothy... We see God's desire for his church is for order. That's the next point, if you're writing down some points there. Number three, the need for order. He's just said in the previous section, in 1 Timothy 2, at the start there, that we are to pray, and the reason we are to pray as God's people is so that, 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Right? He'd said that we need to be praying for quietness, not silence, We're not called to be monastic communities. He's talking about quietness in terms of a well-ordered society, a place where the news of Jesus can go out and it might be spoken of so people can know of God's incredible love and mercy. And so now he goes on to signal that that quietness or well-orderedness in God's church looks like great relationships between men and women. Now, it's important here to note the context of this next section is the gathering of God's church, kind of like what we're doing here on a Sunday, coming together in the public gathering of the church. We know that because of 1 Timothy 3.15. Look at at it with me. Um, I've written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, 
the pillar and foundation of the truth. Paul's saying he's writing to Timothy so we know how to act in God's household, in God's church. He's talking about gathering together around the word like we are here today. Now that's going to have implications for the way that we apply this in other contexts. But we must be clear, he's talking about what happens when the church gathers. And his first focus is on men. That's the next point, men. Paul's great concern when men pray is what we do with our hands. You're like, what? (laughs) Do our hands matter? I've got to put my hands together like a little kid and make sure I pray so I don't fidget with them or maybe sit on them. Is that what his concern is? No, he's concerned with our hands. Listen to what he says in verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place, not just Ephesus, everywhere. He's speaking globally about what he's saying here. I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Here, Paul's not concerned whether we raise our hands when we pray or not. Like, Leaving our hands firmly by our side as we pray doesn't make us more theologically correct and reformed and clear, right? That's not better somehow to keep our hands by our side. Nor does lifting our hands up to the sky make our prayers more spiritual and get to God quicker because we've got an antenna. You're like, yes, God can hear it now. It'll go through and He's there. No, what counts is not where our hands are, but whether they are holy. In the Old Testament, this idea of holy hands or clean hands was a, was a picture of people acting rightly. If people had clean hands, they'd, they'd acted rightly before God. They'd, they'd done what was good. And if they had dirty hands or, or blood on your hands, it'd be because you've acted wrongly and, and, and badly. Men, with our hands, we can reach out in friendship and forgiveness. Or we can strike and hurt and inflict pain. An all-too-common scenario, isn't it? She is quick with her words, sharp with her tongue. He can never match her vocabulary when they fight, but he can always finish it with his fists. Here is something that God hates. The man who comes to church and prays impressive prayers with unclean hands. I... I can't say this strongly enough to the guys here, particularly guys that are dating someone or or, or married or thinking about going into that sort of relationship. Nowhere in the scriptures does it give you the right to make a woman submit to you. Nowhere in the scriptures does it give the husband a right to make his wife submit to her. That responsibility is given to the wife only for her to submit to him within that marriage. That's her responsibility. And and for a husband, his responsibility is to lay down his life like Christ did for the church. Argumentativeness and anger can come so easily to guys, can't it? But that is not to define us. Not in the way we gather, not in the way we go out into God's world. The thing men in God's household are to be marked by and known for is not clenched fists but our holy hands held out to God in dependent prayer. It's a short word to men, but it's a really important word to us all. Let me ask you today, where do you men need to repent here? Where do you need to make changes? Maybe it could be to ask your heavenly father to to humble you so you can actually listen to him and others. Or perhaps you could try asking some of the men and women around you about where you're being argumentative and and angry. Paul's addressing here this 
problem of an outward appearance that looks good, but this man's, act, this man's action is not good. And it's hiding what's going on on the inside. But it's not just men that have this problem. It's women as well. Come with me to the next point, women. 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing, with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles and gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. What you notice is that while society's views and values change, humanity does not. Did you see that? Sure, men can be vain about their appearance, and women can be violent, but humanity today still suffers the same problems as we did 2,000 years ago. That a temptation for men is to violence, and the temptation for women is to think about what is on the outside that matters, and, and, and think about how they dress themselves and coming across in that way. A couple of years ago, I was driving and saw a bus that had two advertisements on it. On the back was an advertisement to say that domestic violence is not okay. It was a great advertisement. Excellent. It lines up with what God's Word says. It's not okay. And on the side of the bus, there are other images of women, impossibly thin, airbrushed, doctored, telling women that you could look like this if only you looked as beautiful as this woman does just by wearing her perfume or her makeup or whatever it was. And it just struck me, wow, there are the two issues that hit us. And they're from 2,000 years ago being brought up. We don't change that much as people, do we? Ladies, let me ask you, how much time do you spend each day caring about your outward appearance? As a guy, I don't really get that too much. I kind of sometimes look in the mirror. Sometimes Sarah catches me to go, you can't wear that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I've learned now, it's 22 years of marriage, to check with Sarah. Hey, is this okay? Is this going to offend people as I go out? But there's, there's something there for you women, that it just seems to be so important in the way that you look at one another, the way that you, you think about the way someone's dressed. How much time do you spend caring about how you look? Now, I get it, I think, a bit, <laughs> that culture makes it Im almost impossible not to think this way. Like, I've, I've seen Barbie. <laughs> I, I've, heard, <laughs> I've heard the monologue, right? What does she say? It's this, it's literally impossible to be a woman. You've got to be thin, but not too thin. And you can never say you want to be thin. You have to say you want to be healthy. But you also have to be thin. You have to have money, but you can't ask for money because that's crass. You have to be a boss, but you can't be mean. You have to lead, but you can't squash other people's ideas. You're supposed to love being a mother, but don't talk about your kids all the time. You have to be a career woman, but then also be looking out for other people. You've got to answer for men's bad behavior, which is insane. But if you point that out, you're accused of complaining. You've got to stay pretty for men, but not so pretty that you tempt them too much. Or that you threaten other women because you're supposed to be part of the sisterhood of, of women. You've got to never get old. You've got to never be rude. Never show off. Never be selfish. Never fall down. Never fail. Never show fear. Never get out of line. And nobody ever gives you a medal or says thank you. And it turns out, in fact, that not only are you doing everything wrong, but also everything is your fault. Right? It's impossible to be a woman. <laughs> or at least to be Barbie. <laughs> and then if that's what Barbie experiences, what is it like for women? I don't really understand that. But God's word gives a refreshing clarity. There is only one that we all set out to please. And he is our maker and our God. And he loves us and he's shown his love at the cross. And he says, 
this is how you are to dress yourselves. It's not draping our bodies with suggestive attire and the appearance of luxury. We can't hide what really matters from him, what's really good for us. What is that? Godliness. God wants us to dress, or women particularly, but men and women, to dress ourselves in godliness. If you look at the amount of time you spend making sure your outward appearance looks good in the mirror at home before you go out, and compare that to the amount of time you think through in your life, how, how am I dressing myself to live for God, to, to be shaped as a woman serving Him and growing in my love and knowledge of Him? How would that comparison pan out? God certainly made women beautiful. And, and if you are here today and you doubt that as a woman, then hear God's word. When God made Adam, um, when God made Eve from Adam's rib, Adam was like, this is it. She is perfect. She's amazing. Unlike every other one of the creatures that have come beforehand, she's bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, one who is like me, fit for me, from me, and a compliment for me. He's so excited about her. And God has made you as a woman in all of its goodness and beauty as you are. And that is wonderful. How do you live out your beauty? It's not by wearing revealing clothes that leave nothing to the imagination. Although if you are married, entirely appropriate to do that at home for your husband because you belong to one another. Now the way we're to clothe ourselves as women is by acting in line with the way God made you. Paul calls this godliness. Dress yourself, he says, with good works as is proper or fitting for women who fear God or who are godly. At the panel at the end of the talk, we're going to explore this a little and ask some of the women up the front how they do that, how they think through that. But what does it look like to be a godly woman? How do I think about that? Well, Paul goes on to explain what that looks like in the church. 1 Timothy 2 verse 11. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. The next point I want us to look at is that Paul says women are to learn. Women are to learn. I want us to focus in here on the importance of learning. The first thing to note is that Paul says, ladies, I want you to live out your God-given beauty by listening to the Word of God, sitting under the Word of God, having a thirst to know it, to understand it, to explain it, to let it shape your life and actions and, and chat with others about it and to grow more and more like Jesus. Now, to the first century ear, this would have been the most culturally offensive thing Paul said about men and women was that women were to learn. It's not that women didn't learn at all, but in the first century, learning for women was reserved for the uber-rich it was like the, the caviar on, on, on the menu. You know, you had to pay a lot to be able to get it. Um, but Paul is saying, no, learning for Christian women is like the bread and butter of life. That's what we're actually got to be focused on. That's what you've got to be thinking through, how you can be shaped by the Word of God. Sometimes I hear women say, look, I, I can't be bothered talking about that particular issue in, in, in the Word of God. Oh, I don't really want to look at the details of that. That's just not for me. I'll leave that for the men to argue about. Have you ever felt that, ladies? Firstly, guys, stop being arrogant tools. 
right? We shouldn't be argumentative about it. We're not supposed to. We're supposed to have holy hands that are dependent on God. So maybe if the guys around weren't so arrogant in the way they want to talk about things with their bravado and beating their chest to say, my view's right, your view's wrong, maybe some of the women would have space to actually be able to interact with us. But secondly, ladies, you are completely and thoroughly equal with men. You're made in God's image, just like man, equally his child, and equally deserving of relationship with him because of what Jesus has done. The temptation is to outsource your knowledge of God to the guys. Can I urge you, please don't do that. It is not healthy for you, and it's not godly. You want to be growing in God's word to the max, to the full. The biblical picture of men and women is intelligent, articulate, well-informed and well-taught men and women laboring alongside one another in a, in a complementary way. So that you can see more and more people come to know Jesus. I mean, that's the purpose of order in the world as we pray to governments is that the gospel might go out and people might see who Jesus is and what he's done. And that's the purpose of the local church as well. God made Eve as Adam's helper because... With Eve, he, without Eve, he couldn't do his job. They're a team. They're, they're a unit. Fill the earth and subdue it, Genesis 2 tells us. Work together as a team and rule over creation. That's what God made men and women to do, the first marriage to do. Now, with the coming of Jesus, that mandate has shifted gears a little. It's now built a different but connected kingdom, the kingdom of God, seeing people move from death to life by trusting in Jesus. But men and women are be partnering in this understanding more of who God is and what he's done, working together, helping one another as they do it. And in God's church, he's given you women gifts and skills and abilities to use alongside men for God's glory. So can I encourage you tonight? Make sure you learn. Make sure you sit under the word of God. Make sure you think through what he's saying and why. And you work hard to understand it and not just go, oh, I'll leave that for the others. Women are to learn. We've seen the importance of learning. But then we hear the dreaded words quietly and with full submission. And we kind of just want to shut our Bibles and walk out of that point. Like, what? Quietly and with full submission? Is this just saying, shut up, women. You should just sit there and be silent? We need to look at these words carefully so we can understand what Paul is saying. Now, the word here, quietness, is the same word we spoke of earlier in 1 Timothy 2.2. That we might lead tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And there it's applied to everyone. So quietness here can't mean women are to never speak. To be silent in the church always. No, it's the same picture. It's, it means orderly. There's to be an order in the way that men and women operate within the local church. God's showing us what's appropriate in this orderly, gather, orderly gathering. Secondly, he can't mean that women are to remain totally silent in the church. You just got to go to places like 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul talks about how women are to dress appropriately in a womanly way when they prophesy in church. Oh, now, I'm a little bit tricky to work out what prophecy is, but I know this, it's always noisy and it's always spoken. You can't prophesy. And, and look, I, lots of people disagree on what it is and how that works out. For what it's worth, I think prophecy is encouragement or exhortation of how the Word of God applies to a certain group of people at a certain point in time. And we can talk more about that later, feel free. But you can't do that silently. Hey guys, here's how I think the Word of God applies to us. You ready? 
What do you reckon? Was that good? Who got that? Did anyone? No, you can't remain silent. Paul also commands men and women in Colossians 3.16 to let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing with God to gratitude in your hearts. That's not silent. (laughs) So here he can't have complete silence in mind. It's an orderliness in the way that something happens in the church. And the way he describes that orderliness is within submission. Now, that word's maybe even more offensive than the first one. <laughs> you kind of hear submission, and we're like, oh, what is this? Submission has got such a bad rap because of the abuses so often of men and men enforcing certain ways to operate or using these parts of the Bible to say, women shouldn't speak, you just do what you're told, move on, get back in the kitchen. Oh, that is not what the Bible says. But the reason we don't like the idea of submission is because no one likes to submit. We love to take the lead in our lives. We love to call the shots to determine what I want to do. We don't want anyone telling us what we should do. One of the biggest hurdles of becoming a Christian and putting your trust in Jesus is handing the reins of your life over to someone other than yourself. We naturally don't like to submit, none of us. But if you think about it, we, we submit all the time. And it's actually really good for us. Imagine a world where we didn't submit to any rules. We went, no, submission, bad, I'm never doing it. Firstly, all sports would end. Because you know that person who never plays by the rules? Well, now they're like, oh, that's fine, I don't need to... What rules? You know, they're playing pool, they just go around and just push all the balls. And you're like, dude, come on, like how boring would life be if people didn't play by the rules? Imagine board game night. You're there, oh, this is how this game is played. Like, no, I like to play it this way. And they're playing a different game, but on the same board. And you're like, this is no fun. This is not good. We've got to actually stick within the bounds. Imagine that we all threw out the social etiquette rules. Like, no one brushed their teeth for like five weeks and they talk to you and you die because of the smell that came out. I'm going to submit to you and brush my teeth in front of you. Clothing's overrated. Why should I wear that around? I just want to walk around naked. I think that's good. And imagine a world like that with no rules and no one submitting. It'd be like everyone's mental age was reduced to a two-year-old. And then we went, okay, go. Drive cars, live life. It'd be crazy. It's horrible. No, submission is actually for our good. What is submission? Well, here's, here's a definition. A voluntary and willing acceptance of the leadership and responsibility of another. A voluntary and willing acceptance of the leadership and responsibility of another. The problem is, we equate submission with inequality. If I have to submit, I mustn't be as important as you. But the Bible's clear, friends. Men and women are equal. Jesus submits to his father, but is he less than him? No, he's fully God and fully man. It doesn't make him somehow less in who he is and his value and dignity and worth. There's a rightness and a beauty to the way God made us as men and women. 100% equal in dignity and worth, yet different in role. And that's what Paul is expressing here as he shows us what it looks like in the context of the gathered church with regard to the task of teaching. That's our next point, the task of teaching. Point number five. 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, 
Instead, she's to remain quiet. Okay, so what does that mean? It can't mean she never teaches. We've already talked about that. We're called to teach and admonish one another. In Colossians 3, we already saw that. In Titus 2, just to be super clear, Paul commands women to teach. Look at it. Women are to teach what is good. So they might encourage young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure workers at home, kind, in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. Women, you are commanded to teach. So what's going on here? And why is this prohibition saying, no, within the gathered people of God, that's something that we don't want you to do? Well, in the next chapter of 1 Timothy, we see Paul talk about the the skill set of elders, the leaders who have authority in the local church. And we're going to see that next week. But there's only two skills that are in there. The rest are all characteristics about godliness and the way to act. But the two skills are they must be able to manage their households well and they must be able to teach. And the word to teach here in 1 Timothy is the same word to teach that's used throughout the Bible. You know, scholars have looked into the word to teach. Um, Claire Smith, whose book is on the bookstore out there, is an excellent book on this issue. Um, has got a PhD, 500 and something words. I've read some of it in prep for this this week, where she spends that amount of time to work out what to teach means in the Greek, in, in every context of the Pauline letters. And what she kind of lands is that the closest translation of what to teach, the word to daske means from the Greek, means in English is to teach. <laughs> There's six years of PhD, you know, and helpfulness. It's a broad range of meanings and what we actually use the word to teach to mean today. There's nothing like, oh, the Greek's going to help you in this particular area, although it will in a little bit. Here, Paul extends the idea of teaching so that others might learn to have some sort of authority. Now, because of how many people raise different arguments here about what Paul's saying, I want us to slow down a little bit. You're like, what? So right, we'll go a little bit longer tonight, then we'll have a panel, and it'll be helpful, hopefully, to make sure you ask your questions. But I want us to slow down and to press into a little bit of the way that the words work with Greek grammar. Why are we doing grammar? Well, because that's how we understand anything. Uh, the rules of grammar. If you throw the rules of grammar out, <laughs> you can't understand anyone in any way. What Paul's saying here is to do not permit women to teach and have authority over a man. They're two separate but related ideas or things. So he's not saying women can never teach at all, as we just saw, right? Uh, he's not saying women can't teach men. Women are teaching men in, in the one another context all the time, learning from one another as we sing and admonish to one another, as we encourage one another and spur one another on. That's happening all the time, men to women, women to men. Men learn from women all the time. It's a particular type of teaching here Paul has in view that's kind of looking like the teaching that an elder would do in the gathered people of God. He's also not saying here that women can't have authority. He's not saying, um, I do not permit women to teach in any way or to have authority in any way. No, women can be business owners, employers, government officials. There's no issues with a woman having authority in all sorts of realms of life. But when it comes to the gathered people of God and the way an elder has authority in the gathered people of God is to teach the Word of God, so that it has an authority amongst the people that that elder is over to serve. It's a particular type and context of teaching that Paul has in mind here. It's a teaching that kind of leads to authority. Now, some older transla translations, they, um, they don't say, I permit a woman to teach or have authority. They say, I don't permit a woman to teach or usurp authority. 
So some people have come along and gone, okay, so the problem here is I don't permit women to kind of um, have this way that in the church they're saying, no, I'm not going to let you be the boss, I'm going to be the boss. I'm going to usurp your authority in that way. But the Greek grammar doesn't allow us to read that as usurp. Because the word that joins teach and authority always joins two things that are either both positive or both negative. So let me try and help you understand this. Um, So we could say, maybe what Paul's saying here is, I do not permit women to teach or to kind of have an authority that's that's, um, a negative or usurping authority over men. But the assumption is that men can do that. It's just women that aren't permitted to do it. So as Paul's saying, it's fine for men to teach in a way that usurps authority or in a way that um, is, is, has an authority that, that kind of pushes over others? No, because the teaching is positive and the authority is positive. God wants um, there to be in the church leaders that have authority driven from God's word. And so here you're seeing two things that can't be one positive and one negative. It's, no, teaching is a good thing and authority in the church is a good thing. It's just that The way that God has made us as men and women, it's inappropriate for a woman to be in the gathered people of God, teaching in such a way that it has authority over those people who are men. Because there's a relational relational connection or context for that. So, the best way to translate it, as kind of looked at the the evidence that's there, the, the grammatical kind of movements coming forward, is actually like this. I do not permit a woman to teach so neither have authority over a man. You see it on the screen. I do not permit a woman to teach, so neither have authority over a man. The authority is a a result of, so that it comes from it, but they're two separate things, but they're linked. If you've got more questions on that, I'd love to chat with you more about that. So, what is this teaching that Paul is talking about that results in authority in some ways in the local church? Well, I want to show you a teaching pyramid. Here's a bit of a pyramid. It's not a scheme. I'm not going to ask you to sign up for anything. But here's kind of a picture of how teaching works throughout the Scriptures. At the top, we've got our great teacher, who's always right, called Jesus. He's the great high priest. He's the chief shepherd. And what he says goes, he has authority over all of us. We submit to his word. That's his type of teaching, and it's definitely authoritative. The second kind of type of teaching is the one that's given in the Bible, the role that's given in the Bible to male elders or under-shepherds. We're teaching God's word in a way that has kind of an authority over the congregation. We're told to submit to our leaders as they submit to Christ under Him. We've got to remember we're all under shepherds there. And the third kind of level of, of teaching, and I think there's a gradient between these, by the way, it's not just black and white, is women, and they're encouraged to teach in this bracket, as are men in the one another kind of language, and particularly the men who aren't elders. <laughs> So there's this whole one another type of teaching where we teach and admonish one another. And there's not such a level of authority when you're chatting after church and you're kind of going, hey, what do you think of that? And you're you're talking together. You don't kind of come away from that conversation with one of you going, well, um, this person I was chatting to, they said it's this, so I'm under their authority in this. In the same way that, well, if I'm in this church and, and the elders and leaders are saying, here's what God's Word is saying, here's where we're going as a church, they've been given under God and under His teaching, so long as it aligns with His Word, that authority in the local church. And what Paul is saying here is that in this context, in the gathering of the local church, because of the way God made us, women aren't to have that role of teaching in a way that leads to authority over men. Now, this is a a picture of, of God saying this is actually good for us. 
This is the way that God made us. This is the way that God made women to express their godliness and beauty in complementarity. This type of teaching that brings a pastoral type level of authority over men in the public gathering is good for the elders of the church to be doing, but not for women to have that relationship over men. Now, the question is, why? Why does Paul say this? Why does God say this? I mean, it could be, could it be that, that men are better teachers than women? And that could be part of it. But that's not been my experience. I've, I've learned from so many women uh, who've helped me to understand it. In fact, understanding this passage, I learned from Claire Smith, who wrote that book, God's Good Design. Uh, it's so helpful. It doesn't, I'm not a better teacher than her. She's, she's spent all this time, and she's super sharp in these areas. So it's not got to do with our, the quality of teaching. Otherwise, if women weren't as good teachers, why would, why would Paul say, hey, instruct the women to teach women and children? Like, no, you'd say, if you're not good teachers, hey, then don't teach. <laughs> That's not what he says. And women and children are just as important as men. Now, could it be, maybe, that men are less likely to fall into false teaching than women? Well, that's not been my experience either. If you think about all the false teachers in this letter that Paul references so far, they're all men. They're all men, like Hymenaeus and Alexander. They're kind of, they've gone off with this false teaching and it's taking the church aside. And Paul tells Timothy they've left and he's exited them. Each time you come across false teachers in the Bible, they're almost always men. So I don't think it's got anything to do with women being more gullible. Not at all. Could it be that there was just some cultural local church problem in Ephesus here that applied for a time to that particular church? And this is the view that lots of people take. They kind of come along and go, oh, it was, it was a cultural thing at that point in time, not for all time. And they kind of come and look at all the evidence that exists for different things, like the Artemis worship that was going on in, in the temple cult that was there amongst Ephesus, where there was a prominence of women teaching. Um, and, but the problem is, as you look into that evidence, well, there's a bit out there, and it relies on a number of iterations of truth, but it actually pushes 180 degrees against in the opposite direction of what the text clearly says is the reason. The text doesn't say it's got something to do with the culture of the time. Paul gives us the reason why this is the case. That's point number six. The reason. Verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. Paul grounds this command in creation order, in the way God made men and women. See, Adam was made to lead Eve, and that was great. We go, why should Adam be the leader? Why should he do that? I know lots of men that are crap leaders. Well, why is this the case? And that's because we live in a fallen world, a world that's full of man's sin and failure to lead well, and women's sin. Remember, the, the result of the fall was that the woman would want to lead the man. That was her punishment, and her desire would be to rule him. But God made Adam to lead his family. The very first church gathering would have been Adam and Eve, as, as Adam explained to Eve what God told him. He was declaring the word of God, because Eve wasn't there when God said, don't eat from the tree of a knowledge of good and evil, but you can eat from any other tree. But by the time we get to Genesis 3 and the serpent approaches Eve, she knows that truth. It hasn't come from God, it's come from Adam, who was 
explaining what God had said to him and, and leading his wife in a good way of what God said so that they might together rule over creation. It's a good thing about the way God made men and women. And God was the one that made Adam first, Paul tells us. And so that firstborn carries a responsibility. He, he gives the responsibility to lead that family to Adam. Romans 5 tells us that sin entered the world through one man, Adam. But didn't Eve sin first? Wasn't she the one that took and ate from the tree? Why is Adam getting the blame? Well, I think that's the second part of what Paul describes here in verse 14. That Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed, actually shows the failure of Adam. See, he's not saying that women are more open here to deception. He's saying Adam sinned first by failing to lead Eve, by standing by in silence, by Breaking the created order that God made between men and women, Adam failed to lead in teaching what God said in a way, going, hey, I don't think this is a good idea. What did he say? Nothing. He was silent when he should have spoken. Eve was deceived. Now, Eve, she owns her sin. She names it. I was deceived. Adam, he wasn't deceived. He knew the truth. He just went along with it. He's done the worst thing. He was responsible for this family unit. He didn't say, no, no, this is a bad idea. Let's not let creation rule over woman to then make me then reject God like he should have done. He just went, okay, looks good. I'm going to go against God's word. And we have a complete reversal here of the order of creation. God made man, Adam, to rule alongside, equal his wife, Eve, to rule over creation. And serpent creation comes, leads Eve to reject the husband, Adam, who rejects God. What Paul's saying here is not that women are more open to deception. He's saying that he doesn't want the error that happened in the Garden of Eden to happen in God's church. The order of relationships, the good order of relationships that God made men and women to have, he doesn't want to see that Affect God's church. Come in where the order is reversed. It's not that the woman wasn't kind of good or she had some ability problem that she couldn't understand what was going on. It's there's a goodness to the way that we relate here between a husband and a wife. And Paul is applying that in the way we think about the church family as well. God wants men and women to work together in the family with the husband leading his wife sacrificially, just as God wants men and women to work together in the church family. Not pushed aside, not women kind of out there doing the, the unimportant things. No, with women alongside men as, as a great way that the Eve was Adam's helper to think through ruling over creation. So we're to be in the church at every level of leadership, standing alongside, encouraging, working in a complementary way with the gifts and skills God has given us. But when it comes to that teaching that leads to authority in the gathered church, in the public gathering, Paul says it's not right or proper, given the way that relationships have been set up by God, for a woman to do that in the company of a man. Well, that's how we make sense of that part so far. The last thing I want us to land on is the very last verse in 15. What is going on with that? Verse 15, But she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. All right. Now, there are two main views of this. Um, I'm only going to give you one. You can chat about the other one later. They both could be right. They both kind of land you in the same place. 
But I think a really helpful way that a friend of mine um, pointed out that we can understand this last section is to remove from the sentence the childbearing. Now, I'm not suggesting we take bits out of the Bible. Not a good idea. But it actually helps you to work out what's going on here. So let's have a look at it. But she will be saved if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. See, Paul is adamant that salvation is by faith alone, by God's gift in Jesus Christ, right? That's chapter one, right? Jesus Christ came into our world to save sinners, and you're saved by putting, putting your faith in Christ. So she will be saved if she continues in faith, love, and holiness. Women will be saved if they continue trusting in Jesus and living that out in a right way. We take the childbearing out and we go, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. That uh, She's not to, to kind of uh, assume that position within the church, the gathering of, of teaching men, but she's to live out godliness and trust in the way God has made her um, and to serve him with the gifts, skills and abilities and roles God's given her. Kind of just makes sense. But when you add the words through childbearing back in, what does that do? Well, the context here has been that the false teaching that's been going on in Ephesus has been about forbidding marriage. How do we know that? Paul tells us, 1 Timothy 4 verse 3. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. So people were saying, no, you can't get married. No, you can't live out these things. You've just got to get rid of it all. It's an asceticism. We should stop living in the goodness of God. But Paul says, no, 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 no. God has made you with these values that, that marriage is good and, and relationships are good and sex within marriage is good. We shouldn't push those things aside. In a large part, he's made men and women to reproduce. That's one of the good gifts of God. And if you were to pick one trait that typically signifies women, the trait that's kind of possibly most womanly, wouldn't it be to have children? It's something that men definitely can't do. Now, Paul knows not every woman can have children. He's not saying here that an act of having a child saves you. But what he's saying is that women, as you continue trusting in what Christ has done and loving others and living in holiness, you'll do that in a way that is womanly. You'll do it in the womanly way God made you. He uses this through childbirth as a signifier that typically kind of points out what is womanly about women. Now, God has given women, no matter whether you're married or not, whether you're, you're single, whether you have children or not, a monthly reminder that childbearing is in some ways what your body was made to do. And you've got to understand, this is spoken in, in an era when there is no contraception, no social security for those that, that aren't able to feed themselves or work. And so marriage and the family was the thing that everyone would kind of do. It's a norm for the majority of people. And if you couldn't have kids... There's a real and right longing and burden to have them. So one way or another, childbearing here signifies what it is to be womanly. You could replace it by saying, women will be saved if they express their womanliness as they continue in faith, love and godliness with good sense. Keep being the different and beautiful and wonderfully created woman that God made you to be without needing to be a man. Seems to be what our society has swallowed whole, isn't it? You can only be valued and beautiful and good if you are the same as a man. But God says, no, there's something so good about this. Well, as we think through women in this church, I just need to say at this point, I've been so blessed by the women of this church, as one of this church's leaders. The, the wide range of personalities that God has given you and 
the way that you graciously serve alongside other men in this church to, to love God and to serve others. I see a, a church full of women that, that are gifted, who, who lead teams and departments within our church, who, who raise up children and, and grandchildren, who, who have this beautiful Christ-likeness in, in a desire to live as, as women in God's world. I see women who respectfully stand their ground on issues that are essential, and that's good. Women who are marked by modesty and, and prayerfulness and a generous heart. Women whose words are drenched with wisdom and patience and knowledge. I know I've been rebuked a number of times, too many to count, by women in our church in a really good way that's been helpful and helped me to see things that I've missed. We need one another. This church is better for you serving with your full womanliness alongside the men here. So I want to encourage you tonight, as you come along and think through how will you respond to God's Word, to ask the question, will I let culture shape the way I read the Bible? Or will I let the Bible shape the way I read culture? Because God is clear in His Word that this is what it means to live life to the full, to experience to thrive and experience what it is to be men and women. So the question is, will we trust God in that? Well, why don't we now invite up some of those women's voices? Um, I'd love to invite up uh, Marielle and Sarah. Um, so give these guys a round of applause now as they come up. Welcome, ladies. Um, you can come, come across... Um, Marielle, uh, you, you particularly work here amongst the women uh, at Uni Church, trying to help women understand God's Word. Um, your background was um, coming from an engineering degree in psychology. You've kind of given that up to think through ministry. I'm going to ask why in a second. And Sarah, uh, you're married to Rowan, which is kind of great. Yep. So I do have a wife. <laughs> Woo! Um, I exist. <laughs> for you, um, you were working for one of the top four accounting firms. I decided to leave that, not to be a mother, but to study theology. Um, tell us, why did you do that? And I'm going to ask you the same question, Marielle. And how do, you, how do you think through that when the culture around you is pushing you to say, no, stay at work, keep, keep going in this way? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I left a job that I could have continued in. Um, and I, I think I, as I looked around, I saw the push to strive and to succeed and the lack of um, people going into full-time ministry and thinking about how we can actually serve Jesus with all that we have and with all of our time. Um, I, and I think it was a challenge. So growing up, I wanted to be a missionary in China um, and actually like talk about Jesus with everyone and bring um, the gospel to um, lots of people who didn't know it. And so um, I think there was a sense for me in working in a workplace that was very secular was quite frustrating. But at the same time, I wanted to use my, the opportunities I had there to talk about Jesus, but I couldn't do that very well. So um, going to college, I feel like equipped me. And actually before that, I, I did a ministry apprenticeship. And I want to give a plug to that for any women here um, who are thinking about being trained uh, to handle the Word of God, to teach it, and to even just um, think about how they do that in their everyday life. Mm. Um, you don't have to go into full-time ministry after that, but it's an important thing. So I think, and culture pushes us the other way. They want us to, like the people around us, they want us to um, succeed in our jobs. Our parents, like, we paid for your uni degree, or we, like, we supported you through this, and they'll be pushing us as well to um, 
go into careers. But the importance of actually giving up time to study the word at college was really, really beneficial and helpful. Um, was there another question? Nope, that's great. Um, Marielle, for you, um, to kind of go, why give up engineering and think through spending time um, handling the word of God as a woman? Yeah, um, I think growing up I was not nearly as noble <laughs> in my <laughs> pursuit of doing engineering. I was partly indecisive and partly a little bit snobby as a high school kid. I got relatively good grades. I thought, oh, engineering, that sounds, that sounds good. It sounds like a sta something stable, something that will make me some money. And, uh, yeah, I was partly indecisive, so I tacked on psychology. Partly I wanted a little bit of clout. <laughs> I'm like, ooh, two degrees, that's, that's cool. Um, but yeah, and it's kind of my second year of uni, I, yeah, I actually really <laughs> had, had some questions about what I believed in, whether I did believe in them or not. And uh, yeah, I ended up deciding, yeah, actually this is real and the gospel is true. If it's true, then my life cannot just orbit around me. Um, yeah, Jesus, Jesus needs to change uh, everything. Mm. So my priorities completely reshuffled. And uh, yeah, I guess over the course of my degree, I spent more time actually talking to people about Jesus than I did studying. And I found a greater passion there. So yeah, I, I think that was what made me think about actually, yeah, I think I shouldn't just um, do engineering after this. Uh, and also just thinking through what is going to matter in, you know, 10,000 years' time when I look back on my life. Um, is it going to be the, the time I spent doing engineering or is it actually um, the people that I invested into? And, yeah, I wanted to look back and say, yeah, actually, I did, I did what I could uh, to share the gospel. Mm, thank you. Um, I want to move now into some of the questions around um, Paul says here it's... Um, Women are to dress themselves with good works as proper or fitting uh, for women who are godly. Um, what does it look like, maybe, for you as women to be godly in the world that we live in? Yep. As you answer that, I'm going to run and get my phone. It's got the rest of the questions you just asked on it. So, go. <laughs> um, what does it look like? Well, I think even if we just look at the passage to begin with, um, you see that Paul is actually jumping to the reason that we don't want to focus on how we look on the outside is because we actually want to focus on our godliness and what our hearts look like and how to live worshipping God. And um, I think to the verse in Colossians, clothe yourselves with humility and gentleness and compassion. And so when you look in the mirror in the morning rather than thinking, Oh, who's, who am I dressing for? What, what am I going to wear today? Um, what might people say? Maybe thinking, how can I be more humble? How can I be more compassionate? How can I put on the things that matter um, to Jesus and to God? And yeah, so I think the dressing modestly is also about um, just that not, not being distracting and not, not being caught up with how we look on the outside. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is an interesting one. I, th I think that, uh, yeah, in, in some ways, like, I feel like I don't, I don't care as much about dressing um, elaborately. Uh, and, yeah, 
I feel like when I'm angry, I want to throw hands. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 do, I do think it's, it's like what Rowan said before, it's actually hard, you know, as women. I think there's a lot of pressure for us to look nice, to, um, yeah, to actually, I remember in, when I was in school, everyone was like, oh, your, shirt sh your skirt should be this length, and uh, it, looks, it looks bad if it's not. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, well, like, why, why aren't you wearing um, this much makeup? Why, what are you doing with this? I think that it's all around us. It's all around us in our ad the advertising. I think there's a lot of pressure for us to actually, you know, look a certain way. Um, so I think it is hard for us to um, care more about our spiritual wardrobe than our physical one. Uh, so, yeah, but uh, if, if we think about looking in the mirror um, physically, actually, why, why not look in the Bible, which shows us um, where we're at spiritually? So I think I'd ask the question, yeah, are you spending as much time doing that um, or even more? Thank you. Um, as you think as women about um, the, the gifts you have for teaching, so both of you have given refresh talks, um, both of you have got theological education. Um, Sarah did first year of college alongside me and beat me in every Greek exam by three marks, which is, I praise God for her, and was really annoying. Um, <laughs> uh, so you guys have spent time in the Word of God. Um, we've been in ministry 20 years now, in full-time ministry. Um, how do you think about using the gifts God's given you in an appropriate way? In what ways can women use their teaching gifts? And then maybe how, how do you make sure you don't move into an area that's, that's inappropriate for women? Mm. How do you use your gifts? How do you not be inappropriate? Quick summary. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's, um, that's a good question. I don't think I... I think it is grating to hear these kinds of passages that say, yeah, woman needs to be quiet and learn in full submission. Um, and uh, it's helpful to unpack what actually the quietness bit is. is. It's not just silence. Um, and to think about the setting as well. So I, I think, um, yeah, I think there is actually a lot of freedom that we have as women to, to serve and do word ministry and to teach one another. Um, yeah, the Bible gives us lines, but I think like often people come to me and they want to draw more lines uh, and just to make it really, really clear. I don't, yeah, I, f I find that hard. And I think like I understand we all want some clarity, but I think uh, God's all given us different gifts and abilities. So I think the way... Um, and the things that I think about where I'm serving, I'm serving kind of as a connect group coach, a connect group leader. Um, yeah, and I'm happy to, you know, say what I think and in that setting, um, you know, help, help to teach the group alongside, you know, a male co-leader, ex helpfully expressing that actually we're better together. <laughs> we teach better together. We, um, mm. yeah, it's not, it's not good for us to just silo off and think, okay, um, let's just uh, women do uh, the teaching towards women and the men do the teaching towards men. Uh, we don't, we don't want to be separatist, uh, but actually let's think through how can we work together. So I think like um, if you view it through that way, that kind of helps us mm. to um, yeah, see we're made differently, uh, express that um, in appropriate ways. It's helpful. Sarah, for you, areas you've seen women serve in that are really helpful and can contribute, uh, and then also how you... Yep. Um, so areas that I think 
are really beneficial for women serving and teaching in, in the context of teaching. Teaching women and children. And I know that you probably get tired of hearing that. But um, the context of actually teaching children is huge. We're shaping the next generation of children. And what um, our generation has forgotten, or like, I don't know how exactly to say it, I can't remember the words, but um, if we don't teach them the importance of following Jesus, they won't follow Jesus. Um, and so there is a huge opportunity to teach children. Uh, and I plug for our morning church congregations who are always looking for people to teach. Um, and teach them in an authoritative sense. Yeah. So in that same yeah. way is, I think, what it's saying there. It's yeah. not just oh, that every one another type teaching. It's yeah. going, no, here's what God's Word saying for other women and children. Hence why we have our refresh, our refresh <laughs> kind of women's things and the, the conference. You should come. Um, you know, every woman that says, oh, we want to make sure women have good opportunity. I want to learn from women. You need to be there. Like, there's great opportunities for it. But that's with authority and it's having that authority over women in some senses. Yeah. Yeah, and so while we don't want to silo off um, the teaching for women and men, we get to all learn together um, in the context of church and in the context of the family. And so coming alongside um, other people at church and actually having an opportunity for them to learn from you as well is important. So I think um, I said this this morning, but we as women shouldn't be scared of men learning from us. I think... One of, these, one of the um, outcomes of this passage is we just remain silent. We keep our opinions to ourselves, and we don't speak up when we disagree or when we, th- when we see a brother in Christ um, walking down a road that they shouldn't be walking down. We actually um, we need to speak up and we need to be um, teaching and admonishing one another, but in the right context. So women with respect towards men and um, men being willing to listen and to hear the hard word at different times. And again, women to women, you know, all those different relationships. So I think one of the, one of the things that I would um, think through is what's the context in which I'm speaking or teaching? What's the content that I'm delivering? Is it, author- is it you know, standing up and teaching the word and expounding it sort of thing? Um, or is it just giving my experience and my, um, like, my thoughts on the passage? And then what is my relationship with the people that I'm teaching? So um, how much are they sitting under my authority? I think they're the kind of three main um, areas that I think through. Questions in terms that of whether, asking. Yeah, yeah, whether I would be like, am I in authority over that person or not? Um, yeah, does that help? Okay, helpful. Um, a couple of questions have come through. Um, it, it feels, uh, this is a woman, I think, speaking, it feels hard to learn when guys are domineering. And argumentative. How, how should women respond uh, in godliness, even when guys don't get it right, make it hard for them uh, or intimidating to learn? Sarah, I know you'd never experienced that in marriage or church. How have you dealt with that when I've been a tool? Yeah. Um, patience and perseverance. <laughs> um, I think I, you just got to take time to talk to each other and uh, it's hard. It depends on the, the relationship you have with the, the male that you're having the issue with. So if you're a female and you feel like that person is um, domineering or being authoritative in a inappropriate way, um, I think my approach would be to uh, approach that person and if they're not willing to listen, I'd bring a couple of other people with me and have a conversation about it. Um, and you you can choose who you sit under 
I mean, no one's holding you to a, a particular context or church or um, our, our heart for all people is that they'll follow Jesus and trust in him and have him as their ultimate authority. Uh, you don't want to be putting yourself um, under the authority of someone that is domineering and is unhelpfully um, over, like, yeah, trying to be too harsh, I guess. Mm. It's sort of, yeah. I think from the guy's perspective, it just, it's helpful to tell us. Sometimes we just don't realise that. Um, sometimes guys... Um, I, <laughs> I, I once was listening to a, a mate of mine who's um, from Africa, and I was at a Christ in, uh, church in Christchurch, and he was saying, when we Africans just walk into the dairy, we're just having a conversation, but the guy behind the counter was like, whoa, these guys are coming to like, rob us. He's like, this is how we talk. We're laughing and kind of going on. And sometimes guys can discuss stuff in that way and don't realize the impact that it has for women. So it's, it's helpful to say, oh, hey, you probably don't, you know, you probably don't, mean, don't recognize that you're doing this, but I just find it really hard at the moment. It feels like I'm just getting, you know, you're not hearing me. Uh, and, I, and I'd love to bring it up. Um, more carefully with you. Uh, that's helpful. I think I'd also um, want to add that we need to really be careful of the cultural um, bias that we've swallowed. Um, so not not following the line of every male is out to get me because he said something harsh to me or um, the pastor at church said that like women have to remain quiet in church and can't teach with authority. Um, I think like we, we've got to still talk about that and not take it as a personal affront. Like it, it's the world's not about me personally. Um, there's bigger things at play, and we're so easily our culture has turned to I'm the most important person in the room, and what I feel goes, and what I feel is what I am. Um, and so we're fighting against that constantly, and it's hard. It's hard to keep questioning culture when we're living in it and we're breathing it and we're just mm. swallowing it all the time. Okay. Uh, three more quick questions that are kind of response to the sermon, then we'll end the panel. Um, should churches have female senior pastor or when preaching, teaching from the front? Uh, we'll see next week that the role of elder, who is doing this teaching that leads to authority, is given to men. So I think God's saying, no, that, that's not, we shouldn't have women as the senior pastor or even elders on that team, because I think the Bible's clear that that relationally uh, is a role for men to have. Um, another question here, in the context of church... Um, women are not permitted to teach. How does EV understand the public reading of Scripture and prayer? Is that not teaching? Um, so, it's a great question. I don't think there's a sense when someone gets up to pray that there's, there's, there's something that they're teaching us that leads to an authority we need to sit under. Um, that, that, that's not there in that sense. So, you want to see absolutely women involved in that. Women sharing testimonies from the front. Uh, women doing uh, interviews. Um, women leading us in prayer. Women reflecting on what they've heard in the songs or encouraging us uh, in the words that we have, um, encouraging us out of songs. You know, we want to be seeing women at really every level of church. It's just this particular area of how we express this relationally in the gathered people of God when it comes to teaching. So even with our kids' church, uh, with our kids' talks at our morning services, often women will give those kids' talks, and lots of the guys are learning from them, but they're all addressed to the kids. Um, the kids are under the authority of what that woman is saying from the front. We're, we're there, and others can be learning, but there's no sense where that person at the front is saying, now, adults as well, you need to do this. You might take that, that kind of inference and might, you might learn more from that than the sermon. Sometimes people do and I'm like, awesome. Or sometimes I hear how good the kids talk is and I'm like, just listen to that, guys. I don't need to get up. Um, but there's a sense there where it's who is being addressed here. And I think the question as we look at this, I think you guys both alluded to, is not you know, how far can I go toward it? It's kind of like the question of purity. You know? How far is too far in a relationship? We know the line is sex, 
So can I do everything up to that? It's actually understanding what's appropriate is, as these relationships are played out and trying to think through the greatness. And, and it is tricky. Um, as a staff team, we're, we're about to go away for an offsite, and one of the things we're presenting is kind of a, a paper to the staff team on how we're going to apply these principles here at church. Um, so we, we'll then kind of go through that. We'll then run that past our connect group leaders and then make that available for church. Uh, we've got our last refresh and recharge men's event and women's event conferences. Um, our days. There's actually two for the women. Two for the women because you've got the full day one as well. Um, and we'll be looking at the role of men and women in the church in those. And so we'll be able to talk more there and, and see how that kind of plays out for us as a church. And it's helpful to note people have different views on this stuff. We're not all going to be at the same point. But as long as we've got God's Word at the center and we're going, I want to sit under the Word of God and I'm letting it shape the way I view culture then I think that's the place we want to be. And we can have these discussions, not angry at one another, but going, hey, we want to live out God's fullness in the way His Word says. So let's, let's bounce this off one another as men and women and, and talk through it and discuss it and try and apply it. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.